The Maker City Podcast is brought to you in part by the McClatchy Company, serving 29 markets across the United States since 1857. Hi, this is Peter Hirschberg, co-founder and chairman of the Maker City Project, dedicated to understanding how cities and towns in the U.S. can move forward in these times of rapid technological and economic change. Today on the Maker City Podcast, I have the great privilege of speaking with James Fallows. Early in his career, he was a speechwriter for President Jimmy Carter and, for the last 25 years, a prolific author and national correspondent for The Atlantic Magazine. Jim and his wife, Deb, who's also a journalist, have spent the last two years crisscrossing the U.S. in their small plane, chronicling economic change in America as it happens with a local perspective that's often missed by the national media. His book on all this, Our Towns, will come out in May. We've kept in touch throughout the Maker City Project, so I was thrilled to speak with Jim recently to get his perspective as he completed his book. Jim was in Europe, where he's now an Atlantic editor over there, so the call was on Skype. You'll hear the quality difference as we talk. Jim, you and I first talked two years ago at Aspen when we were both at work on our projects. And then we had a dinner in San Francisco early in the Maker City effort as you were traveling around the country. We've since been through this election and this divide, this urban-rural divide or this successful, less successful America divide has only increased and further polarized us. Have you become more or less hopeful since we first talked? And what are you seeing at work that's bubbling up that suggests we're reinventing America? I think I become differentially hopeful or maybe differentially urgent compared to the time when we uh, met a couple of years ago and and informed uh, to a significant degree by some of the things that we've seen together and that you have uh, steered me towards, whether it's startup zones in different parts of the country or the conferences you've put on. And I, I think I would put it this way. I think that national politics is at a darker stage than it's been for a long time, a darker stage than two years ago or or 10 years ago, just because we have the national government revving up a lot of the divisions and bitternesses and the worst parts of American history that divides that stem from the ancestral sin of slavery and, and everything else, but also simply as a functional matter. It's harder for people of any political outlook to get what they want done through the means of the national government. National government remains crucial in environmental policy and tax policy and everything else, but it simply is not a system that works very well for anybody right now. And so that is more discouraging than two years ago. What I think is more encouraging and, again, more urgent to spread the news about, as you've been doing, and to uh, draw connections is the ways in which people at community levels and regional levels and occasionally at state levels are finding different answers for themselves and different futures. And I think this is something most of the national media have missed because it's just so easy to do a story from Missouri or Iowa or West Virginia or uh, interior Oregon saying, look, here are people who are mad. They've lost their jobs in the coal mines or in the forests. And what are they going to do? Where I think The more important story and the more instructive one in the long run is the people who are figuring out different approaches. Um, This, as you've described in a lot of your presentations, is the ongoing American saga. In every decade of our history, people have been dislocated and they've had to find new things to do. And the new things part of the process is, in fact, happening in much of the country. 
And I think the odds of it spreading uh, more broadly, being more successful, including more people coping with more of the pluses and minuses of this tech age is enhanced if these stories can be connected. And the, the Maker City movement has done that, and my wife Deb and I are trying to do that. But I think that's the next challenge to connect the stories of people who are going somewhere. You know, when we look at a community that is at once hurting and going somewhere, there's an enormous paradox that goes on. You write of the people of paradox, and you also write that uh, Erie is kind of a central place. So one thinks of Erie as both the home of the Jefferson Society, one of these reinvention places, but it was also Trump's Carnage Central, where there's a great deal of of hurt and yearning for old industries. And you also write of uh, San Bernardino, a town that's hurting but has generation now. It's fascinating and almost painful to see a young revitalization, diverse movement that's moving forward, and then an existing entrenched community that is just so disappointed and losing hope at once. You, You must have reflections on that. It's one of the great dramas of the United States and also the world. There's almost no country where this is not true right now because so many industries are being disrupted and people are having to to find new things to, to, to do. And I think a challenge for people and communities, for the governance of the country as a whole, and I think significantly for, for the news media and communicators is conveying the full complexity here. Because yes, it is certainly true that for people in their 50s uh, who have lost uh, what they've done for the previous 20 or 30 years, conditions are really difficult and really heartbreaking. And compared with a generation ago, people seem less geographically mobile than they've been before. So that option is more difficult for, for some people. It is true that the opioid epidemic is a genuine, genuine uh, disaster for the country. And it seems to be um, overlap heavily, although not exclusively, with places that have had economic distress. And you do find all of these, uh, the, the pressures that are rending the social fabric. I guess I am one of the, one of the rare, rare Americans um, old enough now to have seen this cycle a lot within my own lifetime and to have read about it through essentially the entirety of American history. Now, when I grew up in a little town in Southern California, most of my Anglo neighbors were from families who had moved there during the Dust Bowl. You know, they'd been dislocated from the uh, the farms in Oklahoma and in you know Arkansas and and in the in the South, and many of the Latino people had been dislocated for, from Mexico. And so we're seeing now something that is simultaneously um, heartbreaking and part of the ongoing drama of American life and economic life. And the challenge is to find a way to do what the country has done before, which is recognizing the pain and equipping people to find better uh, alternatives for themselves. And you do see this in places both like Erie and San Bernardino. San Bernardino, very close to where I grew up in Redlands, an older generation feeling understandably fatalistic. But uh, their, their children's generation in their late teens and 20s and early 30s, many people feeling as if they don't want to be depressed, they don't want to feel fatalistic, they feel as if these same circumstances can provide opportunities for them. So that contrast between the genuine pain that is going on for a lot of people and the opportunities that the next generation is finding, uh, both halves of that divide are, are what I think are important to appreciate and to foster the conditions that will allow the people trying new things to uh, to succeed. I'd love you to paint a little bit of the texture of your road trip. This idea of coming to America and taking a trip and having kind of 
the richness of this nation revealed, it goes way back to what Tocqueville, and you write about the fact, of course, in the 60s, as the nation was changing, we're doing it. And you kind of went on a trip as a foreigner, because you were coming back to America, right at this time of of reinvention and paid a little bit of the energy. So, so part, part of the reason that Deb and I wanted to travel into the the interior or the heart of the country was, as you point out, we've been living in China for a while, and this was on the the cusp of this gigantic financial collapse of 2008, 2009, where the news out of America, even more so than, than it was the case in the past year or so of the Trump election, was things are really falling apart. How is the United States ever going to recover itself? And so... Uh, we, we thought that it would be worth trying to look at places other than the most famous big cities in a way that was really different from how most national media approach them. And the, the problem, I think, in, in the coverage of non-big city America is that you they only show up on TV reports or in the national newspapers or in magazines like The Atlantic in particular circumstances, if there is a tornado, if there is a mass shooting, um, if there is some other disaster of one kind or another, or secondarily, if there's some kind of concept story, if you have in mind that immigrants are either being received well or poorly, and you say, let's go see what's happening in Minnesota about that, or if you have something about opioids, or if it's strict political coverage. You want to see if people still like Donald Trump or not. You want to go to the Iowa caucuses. And we thought we wanted to treat smaller town America as if it were a real place and just asking the kind of open-ended questions you would if you were in a foreign country or if you were trying to say what's the state of Seattle when it's going through its tech um, re re renovation or what's the state of Chicago when it's going through all of its violent crime problems. So we started out in the, the northern Great Plains. We were in Michigan and we were in uh, South Dakota fairly extensively. And we went up into uh, to Vermont and to Maine. And we ended up going all over the country in our little propeller airplane over about four years. And the connected theme we ended up finding is, number one, there's a cliche of people hate the Congress, but they like or love their own congressional representative. Based on what they hear about the condition of the rest of the country, most people feel fairly dark. And they think in the rest of the country, really, things are just going to hell. But in the parts of America that most people can experience directly, they feel as if they have some agency and that things are getting better rather than worse. There are big problems, but the direction is positive. And that simple message was a big surprise to us from South Carolina to South Dakota to Idaho to Louisiana. And that's what, what we ended up trying to convey in magazine articles and an upcoming book. I have an economic question. You know, one of the things we're seeing right now is, of course, people are moving to cities, more investments going to cities, young people go to cities because it's they're successful there, and also the density of innovation in cities, especially in this era of the internet and the cloud, is really making them thrive. And the converse is it's hollowing out smaller places, and it just makes it tougher for smaller places to kind of create enterprise uh, innovation and, and to attract talent. So... You know, what are you kind of seeing specifically that's countering that, that, that are allowing smaller areas to thrive and have identity and take advantage of the technologies and the ideas we have now, but interpret them in a way that works in smaller places? I think that like everything else that matters, there's a lot of complexity and contradiction to this. When we lived in China, we used to say that anything you could possibly say about China was true someplace in the country, and the contradictory realities were, were the, the case. And I think there's a contradictory reality involving this. 
Number one, it is true, has been through American history and will continue to be, that there is a flow of people to New York, to Los Angeles, to D.C., to San Francisco for concentrating reasons there. That, that's something that's gone on for, for centuries and, and will continue. Number two, it's also true that some of the very smallest settlements in the United States and around the world are having hard times maintaining their viability. In many states of the country, I, I know it's true of Texas, I believe it's true for most of the Great Plains states too, that for at least a century and a half, at least since the Civil War, in every 10-year uh, census, most counties have lost population rather than gained it. Even as the state as a whole has gained population, many counties have hollowed out. So the smallest places there's a very long-term trend towards having some of them just not be able to make it. But I think a difference is that there's a very significant middle ground of cities between, let's say, a couple thousand or 5,000 on the smallest to a medium-sized city of a couple hundred thousand where they can find new vitality and take advantage of a kind of reverse flow, a reverse great sort. Some people are going to San Francisco, but some people are going instead to Fresno. And I, I think that some of the reasons behind this, one of them is a real estate arbitrage factor, that the startup costs, the burn rate, the risk that's underway if you're in Greenville, South Carolina versus either Charlotte or, or New York, if you're in Fresno versus the Bay Area. If you're in Bend versus Seattle, the costs are so much different that people can both have, both have a better sort of balance of life and they can have a sort of different innovation starting point. That's one difference, the, the simple real estate arbitrage. Another is that very significantly, we found a lot of places we went, there was some local tie that people had. They had gone to university in Duluth and thought they wanted to stay. Uh, they had family ties in Louisville and thought they, they uh, could make some future there. They liked the idea of life in Mississippi or, or, or in Greenville. But and then I think an additional factor is, as you were mentioning, there are some parts of the economy that do depend and will depend on this face-to-face, -face, personal, intense concentration. But there are others where the dispersed internet-based economy really can work for web design studios, for assets that take advantage of the specialties of that reason. I'll just give you two other illustrations now. Um, Sioux Falls, South Dakota is a really thriving city now. It's the capital of the prairies. It's had often the lowest unemployment rate in the U.S. And one of their advantages is that they have there a something called EROS, a federal repository for essentially all geospatial images, satellite images for you know 30 or 40 years back. And there are all these new tech industries which are based both on that local information and the fact that they're in a crucial farming area. So they're using farming technology and geospatial technology to have this be their local advantage. The same is true, I'd say, in, in Fresno, where they're trying to have an agri-tech-based high-tech economy in addition to their standard agricultural economy. In Allentown, PA, they're trying to use a manufacturing heritage to be a place for a lot of high-tech, low-volume, high-value startups. So the real estate arbitrage the fact of a reverse flow, the idea of drawing on local manufacturing heritage or local industrial heritage. This is building the opportunity for some parts in the middle of the country uh, that, that they might not have been able to take advantage of uh, 10 or 15 years ago. There really is something about a town taking stock of 
its assets or its heritage and coming up with what's new, whether it's, as you point out in Sioux Falls, the geospatial data or Louisville really jumping on top of its logistics capability. These are willful acts of, of of reinvention and creativity. Yes, I, I entirely uh, agree. There's a version that maybe 10 or 15 years ago, a lot of cities might have planned if you went to some booster meetings at cities where they wanted to make City X into the next Silicon Valley yeah. or the next uh, you know, biomedical research center as in Cambridge and, and Boston. And that's never going to work just that way. But this honest assessment of what are the strengths and weaknesses of the geographical location, the cultural history, the manufacturing history, the connectivity. I'll give you another sort of strange illustration. When, when Sioux Falls tried to make itself into a coal center over the past 15 or 20 years, they found they were the sort of closest place to every other site in the United States in terms of delivery time. The average time of getting a, a mail from the rest of the country was faster to Sioux Falls than, than other points. But also, their people working in call centers sounded more comforting in their accents than those in New Jersey or in Florida or in other places. And so this became you know, a, an asset for them. So there, there are all sorts of heritages that different parts of the country have. Wichita has a very powerful aerospace heritage from Cessna and others there, and they're, they're using for Boeing and Airbus offshoots, which are there. So this careful assessment of what it is that makes a region or a town that gives it potential, that, that's also something we've seen lots of around the country. You know, you're also describing a sense of agency here. Some of the places that uh, are still waiting for coal to come back or steel to come back, there's almost an entitlement, like, you know, bring the damn factory back. And these other places have a sense of active, reinventive, it's not going to happen unless we do it. And it almost feels like they're both of those aspects, part of the paradox of America. I'm so grateful for your noticing that and mentioning it, because that's one of the most powerful impressions that Deb and I had, and it's in a way hardest to convey. And I, the reason I think it's hard to convey is that the natural instinct of the news media is to convey most of non-coastal America as the object of things that, were, that are happening, whether it's drought or drugs or deindustrialization or whatever it is, the normal way of presenting people in Iowa or Nevada or Texas or any place else is you have some big national trend and these people are, are its objects. And certainly there are trends of which that is true, that the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl was stronger than any individual farmers were, but almost nobody wants to think of himself or herself primarily as an object. And as you point out, when people feel that way, either individually or in communities, that just means the hopeful prospects are, are down to a minimum. And I think that is a problem of selective out-migration in some of these coal regions and other places. The people with ambitions largely left. But we were struck by how broad was the sense of people in their communities that they had some control and uh, they didn't have to be entangled or ensnarled by the politics at the national level, but could say, what can we do in upstate South Carolina? When our textile mills are going away, how can we become a car manufacturing site? When we're in northern Mississippi, where we've been downcast for centuries, what can we do to become a high value manufacturing center as they have done? When we're in Western Kansas and meatpack industries are coming in and we have to find a way to have a successful multi-ethnic future, how can we do that? And we are doing it. And so I think conveying the sense that number one, agency makes a difference. And number two, 
a lot of people feel like they have some control of their destiny, and most people want to feel that. That's a very important theme that I know that you have been spreading and that I'm impressed by and want to convey too. You said it very succinctly when you wrote recently that being active rather than passive is one working definition of today's American idea. Yes, and I think that if you go back to the very beginning of colonization of this part of the world, we know, of course, that that a very significant part of American population, those brought as slaves, were not here as willing masters of their own fate. We also know that the native population was not enthusiastic about this arrival, but we know that most of the first European and the world settlers who came to the United States, the idea was remaking the land, remaking the country, remaking themselves, remaking opportunity, remaking their children. And for all of these strains on the American idea and ideal and reality, that sense of remade possibility still struck us as more widespread than, than you would think and something worth connecting, noticing, and fostering. Another thing I've seen, and Either it's a trend or it's just some data points. It's almost like there's a calling for people to go back to places they came from once they've made it or have skills because this is what's needed now. It's almost a spiritual thing. That's a very interesting way to put it. And I certainly feel that. I mean, as I'm talking with right now, I'm in, in Amsterdam in Holland. But uh, I think both Deb, who is from a small lakeside fishing and industrial town in Ohio, and, and I, who am from a small town in inland Southern California, we feel powerfully connected to those parts of the country and feel as if our long-term interest is precisely in trying to affect life in those parts of the country where, where it can be affected, where you feel as if you have more leverage, you feel as if the possibilities are, are wider. And I think that there's one other aspect of this which may not be as obvious to, to Americans as it should be, which is that this is a sort of more viable model for the United States than it is for most other countries. And here's what I mean. When I was in Australia, I've been in Australia a lot, and I would make this pitch to people in Australia, and they'd say, yeah, that's great for the US. In Australia, we have six big cities around the periphery, and if you wanna go into the middle, it's a big desert. There isn't the equivalent of the Midwest to go to there. In most European countries, there's very, very powerful capital city centrism. And so you're either in your home village just having a nice weekend or you're in the capital city, whether it's Paris or London or Berlin, Germany's a little more dispersed. The United States is really unusual in having its strong coastal concentrations, but also such a viable interior where it's not just Chicago and Dallas and Atlanta and Minneapolis and Denver, which are these world scale cities themselves, but then another whole tier or two of places where you can, uh, that you can think of as your home that has connections to you. You know, I will always be from Southern California just because that's my view of the world. And you can go to those places and there's a lot to do there. So I think there is this kind of yearning, as you say, that has made people feel from Walter Isaacson to J.D. Vance to others, that there's something that they want to do. These other parts of the country, and there's more promise in this part of the United States. There is growing realization in the U.S. that our economy is really concentrating. Not only do we have a few big tech companies, but a lot of investment is concentrating, wealth disparities going up. Tim O'Reilly, in his new book, directly takes this on and says, we have a master algorithm at work, which is shareholder value, and we may have spent the last 40 years solving for the wrong objective function, especially at a time of rapid change in labor. The whole UBI thing is one tactical solution to that, but the more strategic question is, you know, perhaps America needs a mid-course correction in capitalism, not unlike happened in the progressive era when 
the muckrakers and Teddy Roosevelt came up with child labor laws, antitrust and stuff like that. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on both the need for that and if you're seeing a set of ideas emerge that are positive populism in opposition to more of the backward-looking populism that we've seen a lot of in the last year. I agree both on the diagnosis and the prescription. Certainly the trend in the United States and essentially every other country that anybody knows about is polarization of income, concentration of industry, the bad sides of unbridled capitalism, as we saw back in the late 1800s. We're seeing again now, as we look back on the last time this happened to the Western world and the world as a whole, from the essentially the late Victorian era, the Gilded Age in the United States, through the early 20th century, the United States was more successful than most other places in finding ways to reconsider that bargain. And that was uh, the combination of the progressive movement and the good sides of the populist movement. But just saying that we don't want to stand against these technologies. They're inevitable. They're part of what will make more prosperity and more opportunity. But we have to find some ways to give laborers rights and to give people from different backgrounds rights and to protect the environment and to protect other values and not just have the tyranny of, of the crudest sort of capitalism, which Charles Dickens, of course, described earlier with Mr. Gradgrind and, and all the rest. So I think that's the next stage of what should happen in American politics, of finding ways to steer the necessary creativity of capitalism in a sustainable, humane, fair direction. And just as we heard back in the 1930s from Louis Brandeis about states being the laboratory of this kind of democracy. I think we're seeing more innovation at the local level now, whether it's responsible business practices that you see in parts of New England, whether it's environmental standards that you see in California or many places, or whether it's something we've seen a lot of in the South, which is a real commitment to workforce retraining. In South Carolina and Mississippi in particular, We've seen a real emphasis by otherwise very right-wing companies and governments saying our future depends on bringing everybody into the workforce. We can't live in a place where two-thirds of the people in town are unemployed or on welfare or whatever. We have to find ways to create new opportunities. So I think because politics is more practical-minded and participatory at the local level, that may be the bubbling up sense of the laboratories of a new economic model now. Yesterday, I was at a rural broadband conference, and they showed this conclusive evidence that if you put broadband into a community, uh, people weren't moving out and businesses were moving in. And if they didn't have it, they were moving out. And there was just a huge amount of energy of both how do we overcome state laws that prevent this and how do we make the case? And there was also a yearning. That I was down there, and they said, when you go back to your friends in New York and San Francisco, please tell them that, uh, that this is a great investment. Uh, in the future. And part of it was l let the elite media know that there's that there's actually great solutions out here. Yeah, I think that's that's an, a fascinating and crucial point. And, and it's something that struck us again and again, uh, Deb and I, in our travels over the last couple of years. And I think there's a couple of points worth emphasizing for uh, people who, unlike <laughs> you and me, might not have been seeing this as directly. One is, I think that many people in big city coastal America don't realize how big an issue high-speed access actually is. That, that when you get out of a big city, still it is a problem to get, um, get Wi-Fi connections, to have high-speed broadband, all the rest. And so, number one, this isn't a problem that has solved itself. Because you can walk into a Starbucks in San Francisco or New York and you see 200 Wi-Fi <laughs> connections coming up there, that doesn't mean it's the same in northern Arizona or in western Kansas or in parts of the Dakota. So that, that's one point. A second is... This is the 
latest iteration of something that's always been of crucial importance for the country of these uh, the, these connections which allow people outside the big cities to thrive. That's why the Erie Canal mattered. It's why, of course, the railroads mattered. It's why the interstate highway system mattered. It's why the U.S. Postal Service mattered. It's why um, jet plane connections coast to coast mattered. All of those were ways to disperse opportunity within the United States in ways that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And the modern version of all of those revolutions is the Internet. It sounds like the most banal point anybody's ever heard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Internet matters. Connectivity matters. But there's a real practical importance to whether people through the breadth of the United States can get um, convenient, reasonably cost, fast Internet connections that makes businesses possible. Uh, just one example, there are web design studios in Erie, Pennsylvania that are doing work for people all around the world, and they can do it because a local entrepreneur there has decided to invest in really super high-speed and cheap Internet for downtown Erie. And there are dozens of small operations that are there because of that that have had to move someplace else without it. We're seeing all sorts of progress in workforce development, whether it's code academies or technology that helps people train and we can see how we can accelerate things. Some folks of the Rust Belt will tell you that retraining is a trope because it's a broken promise, right? It's a two-sided equation. We need to retrain people, but then somebody needs to show up on the other side to provide work or entrepreneurs. So are you seeing kind of changes in that equation that suggests that there's a matching going on? Yes. And I think the most successful of these programs are, of course, ones that are driven by underlying economic demand of one sort or another. And I certainly would agree if you just put up something that says, OK, we're going to train everybody for computer jobs in the future or for robotics jobs in the future without an idea of what those jobs are going to be or why they would be in that part of the country. That is likely to be a source of frustration. I'll, I'll give you just a couple of, of illustrations. One is in a part of northern Mississippi, we've written about it a lot called the Golden Triangle of Mississippi. That's a historically very, very poor, very heavily minority, largely black population, very deindustrialized part of Mississippi, where a generation ago, the main non-farming jobs would be like a blue jeans factory and a toilet seat factory. And those have moved overseas. And now they have attracted, the state government has attracted some very high-end factories there, very advanced tech, steelworks, Yokohama tires, a pack car engines. And there's a very deliberate training program by those companies in conjunction with a local community college and local high school saying, let's get local people, largely minority, uh, largely very poor, and have them for these jobs, which are our higher skill. Another illustration in Georgia we saw are high schools and community colleges, which say there's an unmet demand for relatively high wage craft jobs and, and trade jobs of wind turbine installers and electricians and plumbers and all the other things. You know, it sounds like it's almost a cliche to say those things, but they're real jobs. There's a lot of growth in them. There's high wages for them. And so we saw a high school, Camden County High School in coastal Georgia, where everybody who graduates from that high school has a normal academic preparation, but also they have certificates as plumbers or as electricians or whatever. And so I think there's a lot of creativity being displayed in smaller places around the country of saying, how can we match the demand that is there with people who need new jobs? We've seen this in, in even San Bernardino, too. Let's wrap up and talk a little bit about prescriptive or predictive things. You know, you wrote a, a year ago that you saw 10 factors that would predict that a city was successful, including downtowns and great education and such. I'm wondering, through your journey, where you've ended up on these kinds of things, and if towards the end of your book, you're not 
uh, either making suggestions or suggesting where communities aim. So I'm happy to have a division of labor approach in this sense that the main mission that Deb and I have felt in our work for the Atlantic and also the book we have coming out next year has been to sort of tell the story that people are trying to do these things and just make people aware there is a lot going on around the country and to recognize the possibility. The division of labor is then to work with actual experts and analysts on here are the kinds of infrastructure investments that pay off and don't. Here's the kind of community college that pays off and don't. Because I think that the the next great opportunity is having really broad collaboration of the kind of systematic analysis that you've been doing on Maker Cities, that Brookings is doing in its programs, that, that downtown developers are doing, that uh, transportation specialists are doing to have these overlapping ingredients in a broad civic possibility. We know that sort of city by city, we've seen people who are planning for the future of, let's say, Bend or Sioux Falls or Greenville or Allentown, they've been trying to commission people to give them advice in a range of these areas. So I feel as if the part I have with Deb is to connect people who are looking for answers with those who are creating them. We recognize there's a vast realm of expert um, analysis of people who are coming up with specific solutions, and there's a great appetite for this at the city level and the public level. So we're in the <laughs> in the middleman role. Your timing is probably excellent because something between the reporting you did and perhaps the election last year has created, I think, such unparalleled interest and intentionality on this project of rebuilding America. The number of investors who are kind of venturing out into the middle of the country, the number of kind of civic invention organizations, nonprofits that are focusing on it. There's almost like a gold rush right now of people who've <laughs> rediscovered the heartland. I think your book will help both spur that on and provide some organizing function. When does the book come out and when can people hear you talk about this in person? So the book comes out in early May from a Pantheon Knopf. Um, its title will be Our Towns, and it has a subtitle still being uh, <laughs> negotiated. And so starting in late April and through May and June and for thereafter, we'll be working the hustings and trying to say, how can we connect these stories? It's in the American tradition to want to hope for something. I mean, it's certainly in the American tradition to resent things, but also <laughs> it's in the better American tradition to hope for things. Thanks, Jim Fallows. Peter, it's a real pleasure to talk with you. You can follow Jim's writings at AmericanFutures.org. He also had a terrific cover story on putting America back together again in the March 2016 issue of The Atlantic. What I found most encouraging about our conversation is that despite the national Sturm und Drang of the last year, when you talk to people in local America, as Jim has done, you find so much of the country is at work on remaking and reinventing. Making the future is what we Americans do best. That's our tension and our paradox. There's a hazard in waxing nostalgic, losing faith in progress, but also the requirement for a constant adjustment to capitalism and the rules we invent to govern ourselves. That's the challenge that Jim writes about, but as he points out, that's always been the defining challenge of the American experiment. For the Maker City Project, I'm Peter Hirschberg. The Maker City Podcast is brought to you in part by the McClatchy Company, serving 29 markets across the United States since 1857.